Uh, for those who are listening, you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church. This is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message, continuing from where we began last time on God's blueprint to build a blessed life in following Christ. Uh, we left off in the Beatitudes, which is where we continue today in Matthew chapter number five. I'll read the Beatitudes in their entirety, and then we will pick up where we left off last time together. Matthew chapter number 5, you can follow along with me beginning in verse number 1. The Bible recording that Jesus, seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. When he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time in your word. Your word certainly is alive already. We're told it is quick, it is living. We're told it is powerful, that it is capable of doing spiritual surgery upon us. But Lord, in order for that to occur, we must willingly come upon the table of you, our great physician, and trust you with the scalpel of your word, that as it divides asunder of joint and marrow, as it lays open the thoughts and intents of our very heart, that, Lord, your word would perform powerfully upon us, that we with absolute trust would not fear to go under your knife, knowing that you will heal through any incision that's made by your word, knowing that you will bring us to the image of Christ by the time you're finished, that we will truly be perfect unto every good work, that it will reprove us, that it will rebuke us, that it will exhort us with all long suffering, with all the teaching of your word. You're so patient, Lord. You're so patient. And yet, in almost a play of words, Lord, I say I want to be your patient. Work on me with your word. And do that which is necessary in my heart and life through these Beatitudes and through the rest and the remainder of this Sermon on the Mount. And I'll thank you as we unfold the words of our Lord yet again. And as they transform us in His image, I pray these things in His blessed and holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Last time together, we talked about an illustration concerning General MacArthur and how uh, at, a, at a celebration service, in order to reward the POW generals that had served under him, he signed his name and he signed it Mac, or he signed it, uh, he signed it, uh, his first name, yeah, General. What's his first name? 
<laughs> Douglas, thank you. He signed Douglas, and then he passed the pen over to his general who signed it Mac, and then the third general signed it Arthur. And those of you who remember that, that was his way of honoring. And I applied that to the judgment seat of our Lord. I applied that to really what he's laying forth in these Beatitudes, that one day, though it's Christ's work, and he gets all the credit, and he gets all the glory, it's all done in his name, yet there will come a time where He will reward those who have faithfully lived for Him, even through the direst persecution, even to the point of laying down their life for His sake. And He will one day reward them. And at that time we read in Revelation, there's going to be a casting of crowns at our Savior's feet. And those who were faithful to Him, served Him and loved Him here, will have jewels in their crown. They'll have those to be able to present to the Savior who's worthy. And we'll say, Lord, it's not anything of me. It's all of you. Where could I go but to the Lord? There's nowhere else you can go to find a loving Savior and to follow someone like this. Now, in this Sermon on the Mount, it's not named the sermon uh, through the Scriptures. Okay, we, we apply that. We talk about it as the Sermon on the Mount, just like we talk about the Mount of Transfiguration. We talk about other instances like the Lord's Prayer, and I've told you where I stand on that. I think we should do better to call it the Disciples' Prayer. I didn't make that up. It's not original with me. But the Lord's Prayer I see really in John chapter 17, where that's His high priestly prayer for us. And so we title this the Sermon on the Mount. But I remind you, Jesus was preaching a message from John the Baptist prior to this to all the multitudes down by Jordan and in that region, in that area, all the way through Galilee as he was healing people and helping people. He preached John's message after John had to lay the mantle down, so to speak. And he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now our king goes into a mountain and begins this, this uh, discourse, if you will. Begins it with his disciples and the multitudes are there within earshot. To hear these marvelous words. I don't know. If I could go back to any place in time. You know, let's say somebody does invent a time machine someday. And I could go and pick wherever I wanted to go in history. And not worry about messing anything up. You know, we always have to be concerned about that. And sci-fi stuff. But just, you know, with our imagination. If I could go back anywhere. And, and I knew that it wouldn't hurt anything or anything. I could just go back and sit on the hillside. Just to go back in time. To hear these words come out of our Savior's mouth. I, I like to do things like this. I, I came across a recording recently. Uh, well, it's not too recently, but uh, some time ago I came across a recording of Charles Spurgeon's son, I believe it was Thomas, reading one of his father's sermons. Now, Spurgeon was never recorded. Like any, All of his sermons were done by, by shorthand. And he would have people take notes shorthand in his service, and then they would transcribe those and then publish them as his sermons. So all those Park Street pulpit sermons, all the Metropolitan Tabernacle sermons, all the sermons and the books and things that he did, a lot of that was because someone could shorthand and then type it out. We don't have any recordings of Charles Spurgeon's voice. So the closest we could get, I suppose, would be his son Thomas. And I'll tell you, to listen to Thomas read one of his father. Charles Spurgeon's sermons. It just brings you in rapt attention. I found a snippet also of a reading. It's just a reading, and it's a very, very rough audio record, recording. But I found a recording of D.L. Moody 
reading actually this portion of Scripture. He was reading the Beatitudes. And D.L. Moody, to hear his voice come through that phonograph that it was recorded on or whatever they used back then for that technology. So what I'm saying is, I don't know what Jesus' voice would have sounded like. But can you imagine to sit on this hillside and hear our Savior pour forth these words, Blessed are, blessed are, blessed. And then to go into this sermon, I think I would have sat there for as long as he could talk until the sun went down and came up the next day and not have moved from my place just basking in the words of our Savior. As he gives these Beatitudes, remember, this simply is his introduction to all that he's about to say. As I've studied this portion of Scripture, I have been intrigued at where what he introduces in the Beatitudes appears elsewhere in the sermon. And it would, it would do well, I think, for you to read through 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew and apply this introduction to say, okay, what is Jesus wetting our appetite for? What is He introducing us to as He develops the body of this discourse that would be tied back to here? May I submit to you that the roots of everything, the seed form, if you will, of all that He would teach through 5, 6, and 7 can be summarized here in His introduction. And in a magnificent way of oratory, our Savior is able to capture our attention and use these paradoxical phrases. We were talking about that recently, another preacher friend and I. Uh, and it came up because of what last Sunday was. I think I said something to him along these lines. Happy Memorial Day. And he looked at me and said, How can you say Happy Memorial Day? I said, well, it's probably like one of those paradoxical things in the Scriptures. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that mourn. Where's the blessing in that? So you're saying there's, there's happiness in crime. There's, there's joy in sorrow. The scriptural perspective on it is those that are laughing now are going to be crying later. Those that cry now will be comforted later. They'll be the ones laughing. And doesn't this just flip the world's philosophies on its entire head? The world lives for the now. The, Lord, the, the world you know, teaches and, and, and proclaims that we should just get it while we can. We don't know how long we're going to have to enjoy it, so just live it up kind of mentality. And how many people give themselves to that and find out, like we have been studying through Ecclesiastes, that Solomon said... It's all vanity and vexation of spirit in the end. And yet our Lord says, if you will go through the fires now. Now, this is presuming that we know Him. If you haven't been saved, if you haven't decided that Jesus is who the Bible says He is, if you haven't come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, then none of this really applies to you because you haven't begun living for Him yet. Once you know the Lord as Savior, and that doesn't mean everything automatically gets better. This was something that I, I had to work through back in Georgia. I don't know how many times a preacher would stand up and have to clarify this. I don't know. I, I kind of never really took it for granted that if I just believed on Jesus, there would be a magic wand that's waved and everything would get better. I never really you know, bought into that. I think I had a little more common sense about life than that. 
Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He's a good God. Every way that you look at Him, every facet about Him is only goodness. And yet, we deal with sorrow, we deal with sin, we deal with pain, we deal with shame, we deal with all of these things down here as fallen creatures. And isn't it great to know that if we believe Jesus, I'm not asking you to believe me, some pie-in-the-sky idea. I'm asking you to believe the Word of God. It's not my Word, it's His. And isn't it wonderful to believe that there is a Savior who left heaven and came and dwelt among men and died on the cross of Calvary so that He might regain all that was lost and undo once and for all, finally, all the consequence of sin. And one day, one day, we'll be able to see all this behind us and have a new heaven and a new earth and a new glory and a new beginning and a place where we can live with our Creator in harmony and fellowship. This answers the deeper things of the inner person's life. This, this quenches the yearning for the soul that nothing else can. Where could I go but to the Lord? Blessed are they. So three parts of these Beatitudes. The ascription of blessedness. The description of who the blessedness is to. The statement for the reason he or she is blessed. In other words, what's the reward? Now, I've given you my interpretation of this and how I view this as really a discipleship ethic. Jesus Christ is laying forth a pattern for His disciples to follow. There will be a reward in the millennium. There will be a time where all of these things will be no matter what. And I think it was J. Vernon McGee in his Through the Bible radio program. If you listen to that on Matthew chapter 5, he does take that, that viewpoint that in the millennium, this will be the king's law. And I'm in agreement with that. But I also would say we don't need to just lay it up until then. I think that we should do all that we can here and now to try to live for this. And the illustration I gave you was that of a father watching his child walk for the first time. As we apply ourselves to this, surely we're going to have to take baby steps. We're not going to have it all figured out at the beginning when we begin to exercise these spiritual muscles. But the more we do, the more it will please our Father, which is in heaven. And with joy, He'll watch us as we try to take steps following the Savior. As we come to the place where, because we want to please our Father, because we love Him, we say, I will take up this cross. I will die to myself. I will bear all these persecutions. I'll go through this because my Savior went through this for me. I think that can't help but please the Father. That doesn't mean we need to walk around with a martyr's complex. Please don't misunderstand me. I think people need to see the joy of Jesus in your life. I think you should, you should pray and, and seek to lead people to Christ. A present ethic grounded in an eschatological blessing is how it's been phrased. And so we have been talking about leading upon the Lord. We saw the setting of the sermon. And in these first four Beatitudes, Jesus is helping us understand what it means to live our lives in a way that leans upon the Lord. Leaning, leaning. Safe and secure from all alarm. Leaning upon Jesus. Can we lean upon the Lord? 
We can when we start from the inside out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who are bankrupt spiritually before God, that they are destitute with no righteousness of their own. Blessed are they because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Why? Because by faith they know they can rely on Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone to take them where they cannot go in their own strength. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. Now, each one of these Beatitudes builds. You cannot disassociate the mourning that Jesus references here from the poor in spirit that He's just addressed. When you're poor in spirit properly, it will bring you to a place where you will mourn because you'll see things from God's perspective that perhaps you haven't been able to see before. Poverty of spirit. There is a way to achieve this. To be amazed at God's grace. To be staggered at how good He is in spite of how evil we can be as human beings fallen in our sinful condition. Aware of our continued sinfulness. Even as I've served the Lord, I've done things that have grieved the Spirit, that have quenched the Spirit in my walk for Christ. And I come and claim 1 John 1, 9, and I get right through the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, and it cleanseth me from all sin. Thank God that He made a way for me to stay in the light. But I've got to see sin the way He does. Finding His favor in sorrowful reflection. When you're mourning, there's a sorrow that attends that. There's a reflectiveness. There's a memory. I believe I was reading a comment that Spurgeon made somewhere along the line about memory being tied to, 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 to tormenting thoughts. And I, won't, I can't give you the direct quote, but in essence, that's the idea of what he was saying. And that registered with me because of who wrote that. As I've studied the biographies of Spurgeon, I've found that this man, you know, as he was called the Prince of Preachers, which, by the way, Spurgeon would call Jesus the Prince of Preachers. In fact, he does in his writings. But... I mean, the world calls Spurgeon the Prince of Preachers. And yet this man battled with depression. He battled with discouragement. He had physical problems that came against him. His wife, I mean, just the turmoil in their personal life. And I believe what drove him to the grave was what began at the downgrade controversy when his own Baptist brethren, who were giving in to liberalism, even turned against him. And he stood for truth. And they chewed him up and spit him out for it. And that was a burden that was hard for him to bear. Hard for him to bear. Spurgeon says, Memory is often attended with sorrow and discouragement. And how can our memories be a slave to the bad things? How easy is it for us to remember the hurts rather than all the good times? This is a spiritual discipline, perhaps, that if... If we're not going to allow discouragement to take over, we take those thoughts captive to the cross of Christ. And we remember on purpose. Not just by default. Not just on autopilot. Thoughts are going to come and you can't stop those. But we have other memories that are like tokens, as one preacher put it, that we can cash in in the valley of the shadow of death. We can cash those in and we can spend them there without ever fear of exhausting the supply. We can spend those tokens, those precious memories. That was my granddad's favorite hymn. Precious memories. How they linger. Precious things that fill my soul. Oh, those precious memories. The bad things are going to come, sure. And our memories can be a slave to depression. 
chained to it, but we can break free. If we take those thoughts captive to Christ and remember the blessedness and say, oh yes, there was the bad, I'm not ignoring it, but oh, I remember the good too. And let's maximize the good. You know, we're really, I mean, this is natural for us, just as it is the other way. How many times have you heard someone talk about, well, if we could just go back to the good old days? Well, let's remember that a little bit deeper. Well, not, no, but let's not. Let's just remember the good old days. <laughs> let's not get into all the bad stuff that happened in the good old days. We don't want to remember those things. If we could just go back to the good old days. The best days are the days that you live for God. Sun up to sundown. The best days are the days where you live in accord with your Savior. Following Him, knowing that that He's in control. Finding favor in sorrowful reflection. Broken over personal sin. Broken over sin in the world. Do we mourn over sin in particular? Do our sins send us to God? Do they drive us to Him? Or do we try to take care of it on our own? Do we change our mind about things in our life? Do we have true repentance? Do we begin to see things from His vantage point a little bit better? Do we come to the place where we hate sin in general? Now we need to look at verse number 5. Finding His favor through gentle strength. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is a quotation from the book of Psalms. Psalm 37, actually, if you go compare that. We do need to look at what the meaning of meek is here. Because in order for us to to really understand what Jesus is saying, and blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, we realize this is a future promise. This is a reward that will be realized when Jesus comes to rule and reign. And yet, can we not exercise meekness here and now? Meekness, as I heard it put in college, meekness is not weakness. And uh, since I've been preaching, I think I can attribute that quote to Warren Wiersbe, the late Warren Wiersbe, but I'm not sure. Maybe he heard it from somebody else. You know how preachers are. But meekness is not weakness. I, I think that that does do a service to the Word, but it does not mean weak. That's, that's only a negative definition of, weak, of meekness. So that, that's only the black cable on your battery, okay? There's a positive side to meekness as well. That to get the fuller understanding... You know, it doesn't mean that we're weak. It doesn't mean that we're cowards. It doesn't mean that we're just easygoing, nice. We let people walk all over us. It doesn't mean that we become doormats for everyone. Let me remind you, there was a man in the Bible, and, and we'll go here because this is the biblical illustration for meekness, I think. And Moses was called the meekest man in Scripture. Moses was very meek. And yet, Moses was not just everybody's doormat. If Moses was a doormat, then Pharaoh would have had his way. But it wasn't Moses that confronted Pharaoh. Now, he did, but it was the Lord. It was Jehovah through Moses. And Moses knew where the real power of God lie. Now, Moses wasn't perfect. We could talk about the mistakes and the sins of Moses just like anybody else. Sure, we could. But Moses, the Bible says he's the meekest man. He's a meek man, is how the scripture put it. Um, Stephen, in his sermon, I believe, had that attribute of Moses as being meekness. And so, Moses, the meekest man, Christ called himself meek. Let's connect the red cable now. 
understanding what the negative is. It's not this, it's not that, it's not this, it's not that. So what is it? Moses being the meekest man. I'll tell you, meekness is self-control. Period. If you want to understand meekness, you need to learn self-control. If you will be a self-controlled person, you will be a meek person. In other words, rather than react to everything that hits you at points of spiritual impact, you learn how to act according to godly wisdom. You exercise self-control. This is something that we try to instill in our young men who are trailmen trying to learn how to live and navigate life. If they don't learn self-control, they're going to burden themselves and others. Self-control is an attribute that each of us must learn to master. We all have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And each one of us has a different point of impact. And the devil toys with us and he knows exactly where to get us, where to tempt us. There's no temptation that has taken you that is not common to man, Paul says. There's always a way to escape when it's a trial like that. Self-control. It means we find a medium ground between two extremes. We're not over here overreacting. We're not over here underreacting. We are acting with a thought-out plan. Taking it all in. Meekness. Now, we've talked about Moses. I want you to turn over to Numbers chapter 12. Because this story, I think, will do more to illustrate how the Bible can speak of Moses being meek. I mean, this is the man that God used to part the Red Sea waters. This is the man that God brought the plagues upon Egypt through. This is the man who, uh, he stood and held his staff high one day until his arms couldn't hold it anymore. And Aaron and Hur would come and bear them up in that battle against the Amalekites. This was the, the leader of the nation of Israel in its inception. As God delivered them out. This is Moses. This is the meek Moses. Why is he meek? Numbers chapter number 12. I'm going to just read scripture and let scripture speak for itself. Verse number 1. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Is he the only one that can give us the words of God? Hath he not spoken also by us? Now watch this. Moses is recording this, I understand that. But he says, and the Lord heard it. Jehovah heard Miriam and Aaron. And they're speaking against his anointing. Now, how many people in Moses' position have not handled this meekly and gone out on on a, a crusade of self-defense. And how many have emptied bank accounts or, or exhausted every legal means to be able to set themselves right and be able to clear their own name? Moses would have every right to do that. He would have every, every, everyone on his side and the Lord himself, I suppose, if you want to say that, he would be in the right. To say, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's consider the facts here. But Moses did not defend himself. Now, the man Moses was very, what's the word? Meek. 
above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. There's nobody meeker than Moses. Why is that? Okay, well, let's, uh, let's explain it here. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses, and unto Aaron, and unto Miriam. Come out ye three unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. Uh-oh, they're being called to the carpet. That's what that means. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud, and stood in the door of the tabernacle, and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so. Who is faithful in all mine house? With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and he departed. The cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, that's a lowercase l, by the way. My Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us. Aaron's real good at backpedaling, by the way, if you haven't noticed that about him. Uh, threw in these earrings and out poof came a calf. Yeah, okay, that's the same Aaron. Lay not this sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly and wherein we have sinned. Uh-oh, we're in big trouble. Let not her be as one dead. Oh, don't let it take her life. This is a disease unto death. Now he's really scared. He's concerned for his sister because they've been caught red-handed speaking against Moses. Note these details. Moses did not strike Miriam with leprosy. Who did? And in fact, in all of this that I've read, I don't even see Moses opening his mouth one single time. Now, if it would have gone the other way, let's say that Miriam and Aaron would have had their way and Moses would have been put down at this instance. This is only chapter 12. We have a long way to go through the wilderness wanderings, by the way. It could have all ended right here. But Moses did not take up his own cause. Moses acted with absolute self-control. There was no one meeker than Moses. You know what? As you serve God, you're going to get out in life for Him. As a disciple, as a follower of Christ, someone who's saved and bought by the blood, you're going to try to live for God. You're going to want to help people find Him. And you know what? As much good as you might do, there's somebody that's not going to like the righteousness that you purport that the Bible teaches. And there will be people that arise, much like Miriam and Aaron. And they'll say, is this the only one that ever hears from God? Are there not other places that we can get God's wisdom and His revelation? Sure, there are. And does this mean that God's going to go around striking everybody that speaks bad about the church, or speaks bad about this person, or speaks bad about that person? He's going to strike them with leprosy? No. But isn't this a telling illustration? about the direct power of God and His mind about His servants. Now let's apply this to what Jesus said about meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Why in the world do you suppose that the Lord Jesus would want to entrust with a rod of iron someone who would be meek like Moses? May I just conjecture that in this millennial reign where the saints will be ruling and reigning with Christ, he's going to need some meek people who aren't just going to go around trying to put out every fire by themselves, trying to self-defend themselves when people of the world stand up against them because they're executing the Lord's righteousness and, and he's ruling with a rod of iron through his saints. Read Revelation, you find that to be true. That's part of the reward of Revelation 2 and 3. If we can't learn meekness now, how do we expect to be entrusted with greatness then? We have to learn self-control so that we're better prepared when the Lord comes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So when you're serving God and someone rises up against you, sticks and stones may break my bones, and words, they can hurt me very deeply. Our words, you know, we had a good devotional on Thursday night with our young men about this. Our tongue can set a flame of fire that is set on fire of hell itself. And we can tear people down with our tongues. That's exactly what Miriam and Aaron are doing. Tearing Moses down. And Moses didn't defend himself. He let the Lord take up his cause. I submit to you, that's going to be one of the greatest trials that some of us may ever face in our walk with Jesus. When things are said about us, uh, let's get the context down. Falsely for the sake of Christ. Hear me well. Falsely for the sake of Christ. Was Miriam speaking truth about Moses in that he had usurped prophetic vision from God? No, that was the Lord's choice. The Lord chose Moses for that dispensation to reveal himself through those visions. He says, that was my doing. That wasn't Moses. Miriam was off base. She was speaking falsely against Moses. I'll tell you, if there is truth that can be proven and accusations come, those people need to be held to justice. That's a part where you should say amen. How many times has someone in leadership, even, in good churches, mediocre churches, organizations that aren't even churches, how many times has somebody swept something under the rug when there was truth to be investigated? This was not somebody speaking falsely against someone for the sake of Christ. No, it wasn't a Miriam situation. I just want to make that division very clear. Moses was completely innocent. And if Moses was guilty, I think if anybody knew that, wouldn't the Lord? And I don't think Moses would have had his ministry continue. It would have ended in, in this day and time. So I don't want to go off on a side trail too much there. I just want you to understand. When things are said because you're following God, and there's no truth about it, then you need to hide behind Jesus. Don't go out in front and try to defend yourself. Don't take this cause upon learn meekness. 
exercise self-control. Learn to take up your cross. And if nobody else but God in you knows it, and all the rest of the world is deceived by the devil's lies, or by the lies of someone who would speak against you for serving Jesus, if you and the Lord know that that's true, why do you care what they think? I mean, really. Whose opinion matters more to you at that juncture? Pastor, that's easier said than done. You're absolutely right. It will be one of the hardest trials you will ever face in your entire walk with Christ. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37 is where this is quoted. The reward, they shall inherit the earth. Plain and simple. You want the earth? You want to inherit that through your brother Jesus Christ if he's died for you? That promise can be yours. There's two tests for meekness. Here they are. Test number one. Do you trust God? Yeah, I trust God. Do you? Moses could not trust in his impeccable reputation. Moses could trust in nothing and no one but Jehovah to handle what was happening with his own siblings. If anybody knew Moses better than anyone else, if anyone had closer access to this man Moses, it would be those of his own family. Do you trust God? If you're going to be meek, you have to learn to trust God or you will fail that test. You will fail that trial. Do you commit yourselves to God alone? Are you willing to accept whatever He might bring? Whatever it might be. Can I submit to you that we have this blessed book? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You do a study of the King James Bible. Over 400 years of history. This English Bible. How many people have died and shed their life's blood so that you and I can sit here, you and I can sit here today and read the words of our Savior? How many Bibles have been smuggled into countries where it was banned in civil unrest? How many times has the Bible made it in where it shouldn't have gone? Because people were willing to put their neck on the line. Bless Are you willing to trust God no matter what comes? Not every story ends like a fairy tale. Some of them end very tragically. Oh, but it's only the beginning for the person who knows the Lord. It's only the beginning. Will you trust no matter what comes? So do you trust God? And will you commit yourself to Him alone accepting whatever He might bring? And then the second test for meekness. Number one, do you trust God completely holy? Number two, how's your attitude towards others? Back to Numbers 12. What was Moses' attitude towards Miriam and Aaron? Was he hurt? I can't see how he wouldn't be hurt. But he didn't make it a stump for himself to be able to defend himself. God calls Moses the meekest man on the earth during that time. What was his conduct? How did Moses reply? He submitted himself to God and let God handle it. 
What is your attitude to others? A grudge is the heaviest thing you will ever carry. Wouldn't it be better to just cast that care on the Lord for who cares for you and say, God, you know the truth from fiction here. You know. And Lord, this is beyond me. This is not my battle. I'm trying to serve you. And God, if there's any light that's going to come out of this, you have to be the one to bring it. I'm going to trust you, Lord. I give this over to you. I submit this to you. Now, Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to hands off. I'm going to let you take care of this. I'm just going to keep focused on serving you because there's more that needs my attention right now. I'm not going to get distracted. This is an ageless tactic of Satan. Do you remember Nehemiah when he was trying to build the wall for Jerusalem? And he had those famous friends. They're not friends at all. You know, they, they, they wanted some kind of political ties and they invited Nehemiah time and time again. Come up and meet us over here. Come up and meet us. And what was Nehemiah's reply? I'm too busy building the wall. I can't come down. He was not sidetracked from his mission that God had given him because of what other people were saying and trying to do. He focused on what God had called him to do. And I would say that that would be wise for you to do too. People are going to say what people are going to say. You just keep serving God. Trust Him. Let Him take care of these things. Learn meekness. Learn self-control. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Next time, we'll pick up with finding His favor in longing after righteousness. His righteousness? Yes. Righteousness in others? Yes. Righteousness on the earth? Yes. To all of the above. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness.